I used to be a, a civil engineer for many years involved in the design and the construction of dams. And that's a, a picture of one of the dams that we built in Chipingi Girl and I stayed there for about three years um, on resident on, on the site of that dam. Now, it, it's impossible to build a dam or any engineering project for that matter without a reference point. And so that reference point is usually a steel peg which is set in concrete in a place where it can't be disturbed or moved. And then the whole of the engineering works are tied in to that reference point. They're leveled according to that reference point, they're positioned according to that reference point. And the first thing that I would do whenever I came onto a construction site would be to ask where are the reference, where is the reference point? Vitally important. And so um, just in these other photographs here, you can see that that bridge, the spillway return channel that safe, safely takes the water back to the river, all of those things tied in to that reference peg or to another peg or other pegs that were sub-reference pegs that were tied into it. There's the spillway as well, the dam, the intake tower um, out there in the water. So it's very important to have that reference peg um, and those sub-reference pegs. Now, before Jesus was incarnated as a human being, God gave his chosen people certain reference points. He gave them the angels, he gave them the Torah, Moses, priests, etc., etc. But what they didn't realize was that each of those reference pegs was actually orientated around the ultimate reference point, which was Jesus himself. And then when Jesus became a man, God started to show us that he was the ultimate reference point. And Jesus was not just the reference point for the Jews, but he was the reference point for everybody. The problem was that because the Jewish people in Hebrews were being persecuted on account of Jesus, many of the Jews were actually going back to those sub-reference points and they were making them out to be the ultimate reference point and in the process they were losing their orientation and in fact Paul said to them, you, uh, the writer to Hebrews said to them, you're actually in danger of losing your faith, losing your salvation. And so the writer to the Hebrews takes all of these um, reference points, the things that they rightly considered to be important, the things that they respected, things like the angels, Torah, Moses, priests, prophets, and he shows that Jesus is actually superior to all of those because all of those were orientated around Jesus. And so today we learn that Jesus is superior to the angels. And in the process, we learn some astonishing truths about Jesus, about God, and about the angels. The passage that we're going to be reading today comprises three pairs of Old Testament quotes. And they're followed by a single quote at the end. And from these, we're going to learn four different things. First of all, Jesus' unique relationship to the Father. Secondly, the inferior position of angels. Thirdly, the eternality of the Son's reign and his relationship to everything that has been created. And then also the Son's position at the right hand of God. So let's just read that passage if you want to turn in your Bibles. I haven't put it up on the screens. Hebrews 1, we're going to read 
the whole of the first chapter, 14 verses. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his hand. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's what we looked at last week. Now we continue with what we're going to look at today. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness before your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So let's dive in. The first two quotations there, um, the first point that Jesus has this very unique relationship with the Father. And so for verse, verse 5 says there, For to which of the angels did God ever say? And then he quotes from Psalm 2 verse 7, and he gives another quote from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. The reason why he's using those two Bible verses or Old Testament verses as a quote is because the Jews understood them to be referring to the Messiah. And so then at the start of verse 5 he says, For which of the angels did for to which of the angels did God ever say? And that's sort of like a rhetorical question. It's a bit like a mother saying to her children, did I ever say that you could write with crayons on the wall? Basically, what she's saying is, I've never said you could do that. And that's what he's saying here. In effect, the writer is saying, you know that God has never called an angel his son. But God has addressed the Messiah as son. And Jesus is the Messiah. But why does he say, today I have begotten you or in some other translations today you have become my son was there a particular day when jesus was created or born as god's son that's an interesting question isn't it well we've already learned last week that jesus was the agent through whom everything was created 
So God was the source of creation and Jesus was the agent of creation. And if he was the agent of creation, it means that he predates creation. Before all of this existed, he existed. So he couldn't have been given birth to or created. What about Psalm 2, which is what the writer is quoting from today? Psalm 2 is all about mankind rebelling against God and his anointed one, who is the Messiah. Incidentally, that word Messiah in Hebrews means anointed one. The word Christ is the Greek word for the same thing, anointed one. Then it talks about God enthroning his Messiah in Jerusalem to deal with the rebellion. And it's in this context of God enthroning the Messiah in Jerusalem that God addresses his anointed one and says, You are my son. Today I become your father. So when was Jesus enthroned in Jerusalem? It was when he was raised from the dead. Isn't that what the writer said in verse 3? He said, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's more evidence that Jesus was enthroned when he was raised from the dead. Acts 13, verse 32, it says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So you can see the close association between those two things. And then, other evidence there, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. So that statement today you have become my son, or today I have begotten you, doesn't refer to Jesus' creation or becoming God's son in the sense that he wasn't God's son beforehand. No, it actually refers to his enthronement, the enthronement of Jesus as Messiah in Jerusalem when he was raised from the dead, a sort of a public declaration. Because before that moment, God always had a son. But was Jesus of Nazareth his son? Jesus declared him to be his son undisputably by raising him from the dead. Rather, God declared Jesus to be his son by raising him from the dead. And that's when he established him as king. So Jesus is superior to angels because of his unique relationship as the son of God. The one God enthroned in Jerusalem by raising him. From the dead. I just think it's important for us to note at this stage that Jesus and God are separate as we look at them in this way because the one is the Father and the other is the Son. So just put that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to it later. Let's move on. So Jesus is the Son of God. He has this unique relationship with God that angels do not have. Second thing, he is inferior, um, angels are inferior to Jesus. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, 
That's very significant. His firstborn. That word is translated from the, the Greek prototokon. And, and at the time, it had a very great significance because the firstborn child in a family shared the father's authority and also inherited the lion's share of his property. And that word, prototokon, it, it occurs eight times in the New Testament, and it mostly serves as a title for Christ, expressing that he is first in the church and in all of creation. So if you look at Colossians 1 verse 18, it says, He is before all things, referring to Jesus, and in him all things hold together. Remember, we reflected on that last week. Beautiful truth. And he is the head of the body. He's first in the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. An implication of this is that whilst we, who have been adopted into God's family, are his children, Jesus has that special status of firstborn because he was the first one to be raised from the dead. So, whilst we move on um, to address the role of angels, the, the writer briefly emphasizes the status of Jesus by calling him the firstborn. Angels have a low status to Jesus because they worship him and they serve him. We can see that in those passages. That word, angel, actually comes from the Greek word angelos, which means a messenger or an agent. And the Hebrew word most often translated angel has essentially the same meaning. So angels are there to worship God and to worship Jesus, which means that one of their functions is to point others to Jesus. They are not the reference point. They are there to point other people to the reference point and to make much of him. Another function of angels is that they serve God as his messengers. They often bring important news and as his agents. But Jesus is not a servant of God. He is the firstborn son, which makes him way superior to the angels. Now, you might think, what do I all this talk about angels? Let's just have a look at some implications and some application of this. Don't you find it significant that angels worship Jesus? Doesn't that imply his deity? Does it, doesn't that imply his status as God? The fact that the angels worship him? In the same vein, Deuteronomy 32.43, which is quoted in verse 6, it refers to God in the Old Testament, but the writer to Hebrews applies it to Christ. It means that in his mind, Christ is divine. He is God. It's a full indication of the full deity of Christ. Another implication. Some peoples in our, people in our day and age make much of angels, even non-believers and those who are exploring the faith. I can remember there was um, a seeker who came here to Harvest a couple of months ago talking about her experience with angels and should she pay any attention to it, and she was fascinated by it. The thing is that in many cases, people who don't even know the gospel are interested in angels 
but they don't even necessarily believe what is correct and what is true about angels. And also there's this danger of using angels as a spiritual reference point around which people orientate their lives rather than seeing them as servants of God who point us to Jesus and that Jesus is the ultimate reference point. So if you happen to be in a conversation with a friend or a family member or a colleague and you discover that they're interested in angels, that actually might be a good connection point where you can say to them, let's talk more about angels and find out whether what they believe about angels lines up with the scriptures. And it's often a way into the gospel because then you can start talking about Jesus and about how important he is. The other thing we learn, folks, is that there is a spiritual realm and it is populated by spiritual beings, including angels. And the primary of the role of those angels, let's just have a look at that briefly. They used to announce key events. So remember Gabriel coming to Mary and Zechariah. Uh, there was angels that went to Daniel. If you look at verse 14 there, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So they here, they serve God. They're all ministering spirits sent out by God to serve us. So God is in authority over them. We don't command them. God is in authority over them. And when he thinks it's necessary for them to serve us and to be involved in helping us or protecting us, then he sends, us, sends them for our sake. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Not everybody. We need to be saved in order to qualify for the angels to look after us. They worship God, they point people to God, and they also attend to him around his throne. We see that in other parts of the Bible. But the other thing that we need to remind people, folks, is, is that there are fallen angels um, we could go spend a lot of time going into this. They're called demons. Devil himself was originally an angel until he rebelled against God. And so it's all very well to be interested in the spiritual realm and seeking the input of angels in your life. But what sort of angels are you connecting with? This is something else that's just very important. The Bible says that Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. He could send a demon that seems to be like an angel. And so if we're not firmly grounded in what God has taught us, then we are at risk. So Jesus is the son of God. He's got this unique relationship with God that angels don't have. Secondly, angels have an inferior position because they worship and they serve Jesus. Let's look now at the third thing, which is the eternality of the son's reign and his relationship to the cosmos. Jesus is a king. I think you can see that, can't you, from verse 8. Just look at all the regal imagery and the, the regal words that are used there. There's throne, there's scepter, there's kingdom, there's anointed with oil. In those days, if you wanted to anoint a king or to inaugurate a king's, a king's kingdom, <laughs> uh, you would anoint him with oil. 
So Jesus is a king. But the most striking thing about this verse is that God addresses the Son as God. Do you see that? But of the Son, he says, talking about God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So let's read on. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Here again we see this important relationship that Jesus has to the cosmos. He's not of it. He created it. The cosmos will not last, but Jesus is permanent and eternal. There was nothing worse, folks, on a construction site when that reference point got damaged or moved. And we need to make sure that we have a reference point that is not going to be damaged and not going to be moved in life. Jesus is that reference point. He is the one who stands apart from creation. He's going to last forever. This creation that we have around us is going to grow old. We can already see that it's growing old, can't we? With all the earthquakes and the things that are happening, it's getting old. It's going to be rolled up like a dirty shirt that gets thrown into the wash basket. But Jesus, he will remain forever and ever. So just some implications here. Verse 8 is one of the many verses in the Bible which declares Jesus to be God. And yet in verse 5, Jesus is distinguished from God. Remember I mentioned that earlier, since he has a unique relationship with him as his son. And so we have God the Father and God the Son. They are distinct persons with the same essence. In fact, although there isn't time to go into it now, the Bible teaches the unity of God, that there is one God, as well as there being three unique persons. One God, three unique persons, and we call that the Trinity. One God with three persons of the same essence. Another implication. Jesus, distinct from God the Father, and yet of one essence with him, He's got to be the most unique reference point in the whole of creation. And because Jesus will outlive the cosmos that he created, he's that stable reference point that we need. Just tell me, is your reference point or are your reference points in life entirely stable? Are they entirely permanent? When you're tossed around in the storms of life, another boat is not a good reference point. You need something that is beyond the wind and the waves as a point of orientation, a reference point that will never be moved or destroyed by the storm. And folks, that's what we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus is central to our Christian faith. That's why we as Harvest Church value Jesus. It's one of the things that we value in this church. Then lastly, let's have a brief look at the son's position at the right hand. Verse 13. To which, once again, this is a rhetorical question. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a direct quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. 
And the writer has already referred to that psalm a little bit earlier, indirectly in verse 3, where he said that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But the, the writer intentionally adds now, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The writer wants to emphasize that the son's position at the right hand of God is one of incredible authority and power and status. But notice he writes, until I make your enemies a footstool. Folks, one of the implications of this is that whilst we're still living here on earth, and before Jesus has returned, Jesus has enemies which will eventually be put underneath his feet, but in the meantime, they will oppose us. But the ultimate victory will be Jesus's. And in the meantime, remember from Romans, our study last year, he works all things for our good. Jesus actually delights to use the work of Satan to defeat the purposes of Satan in our lives. He is more than able to do that. But it doesn't mean that we aren't going to experience resistance, that Jesus doesn't have enemies who are going to be our enemies as well. He's going to work everything out for our good. And we also learned that everything, he works everything in accordance with the purpose of his will. I'd just like to close now by talking about the Spanish Armada. This was a, a Spanish fleet that was sent out from Lisbon in the mid-16th century up the English Channel to link up with someone called the Duke of Parma in Flanders so that they could invade England. This is one of the many times that England, there was an attempt to invade England. In fact, England was only invaded once, wasn't it, in 1066. They wanted to overthrow Elizabeth I. So they, they followed that route. You can see it from Spain. Oh, sorry, let me point here. You, you can see it from, from Spain going up through the English Channel, and they fought all sorts of naval battles um, as they were going up, and eventually they thought, we're not going to win this, so let's head home. And the safest way to do that was to sail right up to the north and then to head west so that they could come down south and back to Spain, evading the English fleet at the same time. But the problem was that in those days, you could only tell where you were on a north-south scale, how far south you were from the North Pole. It wasn't possible to be able to orientate yourself east and west very accurately, and it's because they didn't have accurate watches in those days. So they didn't have an accurate reference point. What was the result of it? Look at where they turned south. They turned south far too early, didn't they? And the, the upshot of that was that 28 ships ended up getting wrecked on the Scottish and Irish coast. Over 5,000 sailors were drowned. This is what happens when you don't have a reference point that is safe and secure. And so what I would say to you today is put your faith and your trust in Jesus and work to get other people to put their faith and their trust in Jesus. We use all sorts of things as our reference point in life. We can even use things that are actually good, maybe a really good preacher that we love or 
something like that. But we end up elevating that person above Jesus. Let's be so careful that everything is seen in its correct orientation and its correct place relative to Jesus. Because he is that reference point. He will outlive creation. He is that reference point that is outside, beyond everything that is changing around us. He will never be shaken. He will never be moved. He is an anchor. He is a reference point that we can put our trust in. Let's just pray together. Father God, I just want to pray for those people who are exploring faith and maybe are coming to that point where they're beginning to realize that, that Jesus is that reference point, that Jesus is so important. And I would encourage you to just keep on learning about Jesus, keep on finding out more about him, so that ultimately you can come to that place of faith and that place of belief and trust in him. And then for the rest of us, <laughs> I know many of us just need to tweak things in our lives because we, we have been orientating ourselves around the wrong things. And just show people what those things might be this morning, Father God, and help them to turn to you. Father, I, I thank you for the way in which you reveal yourself to us as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, each person with a different role. We appreciate all of you. We, appreci we appreciate you. Thank you so much. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.